Hello, everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th, when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections, and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, December the 1st, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. In the history of the independent Irish state, one figure bestrides the latter decades of the 20th century, and he still casts a long shadow. Charles J. Hawhey was a member of Dáil Éireann for 35 years. He was elected Taoiseach four times. But those bare facts fail to convey the many ways in which his unique personality and the way in which he conducted his political and personal life occupied the popular imagination and in many ways shaped the country we still live in today. A major new biography of Hawhey is published this week and I'm delighted to welcome its author, Gary Murphy, Professor of Political Science at Dublin City University. Hello, Gary. Hi, Hugh. Thanks for having me. No, it's a pleasure to have you because it's a really it's a really fantastic read. It's a, a hugely substantial piece of work. And I must say that coming to it, I was struck by how much Hawhey has been reduced in the popular culture these days to have very few simple caricatures on that clip on reeling in the years about us living beyond our means or the, the Mara gags on Scrap Saturday, which still crop up in audio, even Martin Turner's cartoons, because it's nearly three decades now since Hawhey left public office. So I'd say for most people, he's just a memory refracted through stories told by old people like myself. So I'd be very interested to know uh, what people who don't remember him think of him, if they think of him at all. What place do you think Hawhey occupies in the, the popular imagination there? Well, in the popular imagination of my students, I think uh, in DCU, not a lot. Um, I teach modern Irish politics, uh, as you know, and uh, when I was working on this biography uh, over the last, well, too long now, seven or eight years, I used periodically ask my students about uh, about Hawhey and um you know, there was some of the money and then there was some would say, wasn't there something about sex and extramarital sex and an affair? And then some of them, of course, who would be more perhaps politically aware would talk about uh, the great days of Fianna Fáil in comparison to the struggles the party certainly have uh, have now uh, under the current Taoiseach, Micheál Martin, who, of course, served with Hockey. He was first elected in 1989, as you know. Um, so I think... Uh, yeah, as as time moves on, he fades into uh, uh, into the distance. But certainly, the legacy, which is obviously complex, as I describe in the book, and contested, um, is uh, is still important. I think it's important in relation to the economy um, and to the role of the state. It's important in relation to Northern Ireland um, and the continuing difficulties uh, that have been sort of embellished with Brexit. Um, and it's important in relation to um, to money and politics. Uh, I was involved in a different life in terms of we looking at things like the regulation of lobbying and whatnot, and um, certainly the the access that certain people had to hockey, um, which is now gone. Well, at least we think of, I think it is gone. To be fair, I think modern Irish politics is much cleaner. It's much more uh, robust in the architecture it's put in place. Uh, I think that legacy of hockey still lives on as well. I want to turn to some of those things in a little while, but maybe we could start at the beginning. And one of the things reading, particularly the early chapters, they cause me, I, I go out for a walk every morning and I live on the north side of Dublin. So I deliberately walked past the the house that Hawhey 
he didn't grow up his full childhood in, but in his later childhood when he was going to school in in Marino and in Fairview, he lived there in Belton Park Road and Dunny Kearney. And then I walked up and around by Marino and the the, the modest semi-detached house that he moved into when he got married first to uh, to Maureen Lamas. I didn't make it up to Grange Moor, which was the first big house he built, which ended up getting rezoned and made him his first big private profit and still controversial. But just walking those streets and thinking about Hahi while in the midst of reading your book, one of the things about it is that it's a story about a subject which is often under-described in Irish political analysis, which is a story of social class and social class divisions. Yeah, I, I think uh, Irish history would be done a, a good service by someone if they did write a history of class. Um, we're kind of unique, really, in, in modern Europe without having a perhaps a definitive history of class. Am I right in myself? Um, but it certainly looms very large in the in the Hahi experience. I had a very interesting uh, Twitter conversation on Sunday with my uh, DCU colleague Ruth McManus, uh, who's written about inner city Dublin. I think you mentioned her her uh, her book you in your in one of your Irish Times columns recently, uh, and we were joking about whether Belton Park was middle class or working class. Uh, Ruth pointing out that the developer was was selling the homes in uh, in the 1930s as uh, Paddy Belton, who's got a, a very good dictionary of Irish biography uh, entry for him, but um, he was selling them as uh, definitely a step up from the corporation houses uh, next door. Uh, and I was making the point in my book, though, that there's really, as far as I could tell, no uh, private public demarcation amongst the people who live there. Um, and if certain people kind of joined in on that Twitter uh, conversation, um, some uh, saying that Wilton Park was different and some saying, no, it wasn't. Um, and from my perspective, the people who lived there saw themselves, I think, as working class, but had aspirations, you know, as many working class uh, people do, and certainly for their um, for their children. I mean, I'm from inner city Cork. Uh, neither of my parents went to, to secondary school. Um and I think I would have to describe myself as very middle class now. Um, in uh, I live in the suburbs of Castleknock, and I'm uh, a professor in the university, very well paid professor at that. So you know, class moves as we as we know. Um, but certainly the the upbringing for how he was uh, was important in in informing much of his uh, much of his views. I think uh, I write about a father's sickness. Um, so what happened to Johnny Hawhey? He, he was. Uh, to use the phrase in use at the time, invalided out of the army in 1928, having served in the, uh, the War of Independence. Then he took the uh, pro-treaty side. He was a Collins man. There was a picture of Collins in the uh, in the house. Uh, I, I, I relay an anecdote that Maureen Lamas mentioned uh, to her father about the picture of Collins and he said, you know, fair enough. Um, this is Sean Lamas said, fair enough to his, his daughter. Um... But yeah, and if you look, do look at sort of Belton Park now, um, I mean, the Hockey uh, family sold that house only in the last uh, few years. Uh, more, um, sorry, Sarah McWilliams, Sarah Hockey, the, the Charles Hockey's mother, uh, she lived there until she died in uh, in 1989. Um, and, uh, you know, she was get the bus into town. I point that out in relation to his idea of free travel. Um, but it did have a big impact on how he... Uh, uh, how he saw himself, and you know, he wanted to get out of the poverty that he uh, he grew up with. I mean, sometimes when I talk to people, they you know, I remember having a conversation at a, at a talk I gave in Trinity a few years ago during the writing of this book, 
um, where again the former Irish Times journalist, uh, distinguished commentator Diaglon de Bradoon told me that you know the idea of how he'd been working class is you know ridiculous. He used to call himself, uh, used to talk about how his father was an army, uh, an army officer. But later in life, how he did, you know, and it's in the Seven Ages documentary, the great um, piece of work by Sean O'Morda that. Uh, he describes himself as growing up working class. So I think there are complexities and, and ambiguities there. Um, but, you know, I think how he grew up in, no, I don't think I know. They, they grew up in pretty pretty constrained uh, circumstances. Uh, I write in the book how Owen Hawhey, who was the second person I ever interviewed when I started out on this uh, this task, he, um, the Oblate father in, in Chakor, uh, he was born nine years after Charles Hall. He was the youngest of the Hawhees and he never saw his father walk. Um, they used to have to carry him up the stairs, um, up and down the stairs. Um, once uh, the boy, Sean, Jock, Charles, as cockle as he was, and Owen were, were uh, strong enough. And the, uh, you know, and the, his mother was a quite a strong physical woman, but it was was hard labour moving, um, having to um, to live with the, uh, what was a very debilitating illness in the uh, in the family home, yeah. And there were limited opportunities um, for people to move move up the social ladder, I suppose, in the Ireland of the 1930s, 1940s and 1950s, which was characterised for most of that time by, for much of that time anyway, by economic depression and mass emigration, no free secondary school education. So if you came from a poor family, there was really only one way out. If you were a bright kid, you might have a chance of a scholarship. And there was a system in place largely run between Dublin Corporation, as it was at the time, and the Christian Brothers to select smart boys. It was usually boys at that point. And Charlie Hawhey was definitely one of the smart boys, wasn't he? Uh, he was. He. Um, there's a picture in the book. It's taken from the front page of the Irish Press in August of 1938 uh, of uh, Hawhey coming first of 500 um, students who took what was an essentially uh, scholarship exam uh, for Dublin Corporation, which allowed him to go to um, uh, to St. Joseph's Joey's in uh, in Fairview. His brother Sean had come second uh, in the same exam the previous uh, year, uh, and who became a distinguished um, civil servant. He was, I think, ended up as the assistant manager in, uh, in Dublin Corporation. Um, and that was the route, certainly, uh, into uh, into success, or economic success, or moving up, as you say, the classes for uh, for the Hawhees and for uh, for Cahill Hawhey as he as he was. He was clearly very smart. You don't come first uh, of five hundred if you're not. Um, and he did have a very distinguished. Uh, secondary school schooling he had then thought about leaving uh not taking the leaving cert and leaving and going into either work or into the the army following his his father but his mother had a very big impact on persuading him to do the leaving cert i mean even in saint joey or even in joey's the leaving cert is not offered until i think 1941 um and Hawhey takes the leaving cert in 1943. So it's uh, even taking the leaving cert uh, was something new for those scholarship boys. Um, they would Many of them would have ended at the, what was then the inter-cert, uh, the group cert before that. Uh, and, um, and the school itself doesn't begin offering uh, the leaving cert again. I, I think just a couple of years before Hawhey, uh, Hawhey took it. It was a... It's very famous and distinguished school is very give good at sport, um, and hockey sport was an important part of the young 
Cahill Hockey's uh, life. He was clearly again a quite a, an accomplished uh, Gaelic footballer and hurler. The school wins the uh, his primary school wins the nineteen thirty seven Dublin uh, title uh, in hurling and football. And in secondary school, uh, Saint Joey's does very well, losing both Leinster football and hurling titles in the uh, in his last year in nineteen forty three. Played in Crow Park uh, for the Dublin Minor Hurlers. He played on the same day as Jack Lynch played for Cork in the uh, in the senior final. How he played for Dublin in the uh, Leinster final of the previous year, which had been cancelled because of the the emergency because of World War Two. So Hockey and uh, and Lynch uh, shared the same field a couple of hours later in uh, in forty three. So in one way, it was quite a typical um, childhood. I mean. I did have a significant investigation. I, I quote a letter from Vincent Brown um, right at the beginning of the book about you know a serious incident in uh, in Hockey's uh, uh, childhood. Uh, I could find no real evidence of that, but there is evidence of uh, poverty. But there's also evidence of a an enlightened, I think, mother. Um, difficult circumstances with the the, the sick father. Um, but schooling being being a way to to advance. And then the big decision was taken to go to. Um, to go to UCD um, again on a scholarship uh, to study commerce, and in those days, uh, unlike uh, no, uh, and what we would have been used to here when we went to college, you um, you kind of chose on the day, and uh, and how he chose commerce uh, at the urging of um, his great friend Harry Boland. And of course, Harry Boland's brother had an accountancy firm and offered uh, how he. A few years later, the position of article clerk, where he begins his sort of route into the uh, uh, into um, the Dublin, um, a different type of Dublin society, I suppose one might say. Indeed, so he's a he's a dashing young fella from humble origins, but he's a sort of a golden boy, and his you know his rise is. I don't know if it's meteoric, but it's pretty fast, really, given where he came from. He's uh, there, There's an incident at UCD which has been much remarked upon over the years at the end of the Second World War, where there's a disturbance, a scuffle, maybe a riot between Trinity students who had been flying the Union Jack and arguably insulting the Irish tricolour. And Hai is part of a a, a pack of some UCD students uh, who uh, took took umbrage at this, although others, including Gareth Fitzgerald, didn't seem to. Yeah, I mean, it's a very famous story and I, I kind of came to it with a bit of fresh eyes. There's nothing really in the archive about it. There's one... Um, there's one reference to um, dining out on that Trinity incident where he, he writes to uh, Michal McLeamor years later. Um, he certainly was involved in an incident. Uh, there was, I think, probably drink taking, uh, certainly. Uh, he was involved in, uh, yeah, I mean, I, not quite a riot, uh, but certainly scuffles um with students from Trinity and maybe some UCD supporting students of the uh, uh of the allies uh i mean i i make the point in the book i, I don't think there's anything pro german or, or pro nazi in hockey's outlook but there's certainly a republicanism there from may from that time 
Although Gareth Fitzgerald referred to him as pro-German when yeah, asked about this incident at one point, didn't he? Did, he did, yeah. So if you look at the um, the Mint production, Steve Carson, Miriam O'Callaghan um, production, I think of 2005, um, Gareth Fitzgerald is quoted at, at some length about his career, I think across all four episodes, uh, but makes the point that, you know, he was for... Uh, the Allies, how he was for the Germans, he went out with girls, how he went out with boys during the UCD uh, time. Maureen Lemass told me that how he had loads of girlfriends, um, friends who were girls, that might might be a better way of putting it, and they began courting, to use that phrase, in their, I think, second year in UCD. Um, and, uh, yeah, but but he certainly was involved in an incident. I, I, I think it's just been overplayed very strongly um, in the sort of the Hahi myth. He might have added a bit to, uh, to that uh, himself. And there had been clashes between Trinity and UCD students going back uh, a decade or so over, uh, well, over Irish Republicanism, really. And um, I think he's just caught up in that in... Uh, uh, in 1945 on, on VE Day, but uh, you know many of us have been involved in sort of hijinks at university, and this one just I think got overplayed because of the the history of the uh, of one of the protagonists uh, later on. So he leaves college and he goes and he sets up an accountancy firm with his with his pal um, Harry Boland, who who you mentioned, and he starts getting into politics and getting involved in Fianna Fáil politics, and he. Um, he does a lot of work for Fianna Fáil and he stands on several occasions for Fianna Fáil in successive elections, not very successfully for 10 years or so until he's finally elected in 1957. But he obviously has the close connection with Sean Lamas, who will, who will in due course become leader of the party and, and Taoiseach. And so he becomes a sort of significant political figure behind the scenes before he becomes a public figure. Would that be fair? Uh, yeah, that would be very fair. Um, so it, 1948 election, the first time Fianna Fáil are put out of office since uh, 1932 is the is the first election how he has any input in. He's a volunteer uh, for Fianna Fáil in Dublin, North East, I suppose we would call it. And now he, um, he's persuaded by uh, Harry Boland, but also by um, George Colley. Colley and Hawhey, um relatively friendly um in the in the early part of their uh, their young adulthood, um, that soars for a variety of reasons, which we can talk about later uh, later on. But he he gets involved in the uh, in that, so he volunteers in forty eight, um, and then he joins the common and makes uh, and if not quite devotes his life, certainly devotes significant amount of time to to politics uh, and to Fianna Fáil in the early. Uh, 1950s, but he's certainly no uh, he's he's no overnight success. He loses the he loses in 51. He loses in 54. But when I say he loses, he doesn't. He's not elected in either of those general elections. He also loses his Dublin Corporation seat. No, you know it's one thing to lose a general election, but to lose a Dublin Corporation seat is really you know not very good uh, for for a person who has certainly had national ambitions from a a young age. Uh, he he then loses a by election. Uh, in fifty six to um to the son of Alfie Byrne, the famous Dublin Lord uh, Lord Mayor who died um and then how he loses that but the, the important point is he's is he's the candidate I think is 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 the key point there rather than the fact that he's defeated and to some extent as well he's sort of waiting isn't he because he's trying to make his mark but there's the revolutionary generation 
are now into their 60s or maybe in some cases their 70s. So the clock is ticking on them and those opportunities are there for him and a new generation of potential leaders of the party. Yeah, including people like uh, George Colley and... uh and others, Harry Boland, um, but but they're just on just just on the fifties. Just the by election, it's an important by election because by making him the candidate, it gives Fianna Fáil voters who would otherwise have voted perhaps for Oscar Trainer uh, or Harry Colley or some of the other Fianna Fáil candidates. They're voting for Hockey only in fifty six. So then that gives him a big boost, I think, for for fifty seven. So there is this idea of Hockey marrying uh, Maureen Lemass. Uh, as a kind of a step in his advancement in, in Fianna Fáil. Uh, I don't give that much credence, as you know, in the book, because I think it denies her uh, any agency or, or, or little agency. I, I met her once in um, 2014 uh, in the company of her son, uh, Sean Hockey. I went out to Baskin Lane to interview her in uh, in her house. Uh, now, at that age, she was a, she was in her late 80s then. Uh, she died in 2017, but she was... Uh, was a relatively formidable woman even then, I thought. And uh, I think the idea that uh, someone married her uh, for their own advancement uh, really is... Uh, I don't give it too much credence. I much. Well, think she was a strong... But on the other hand, it didn't do him any harm either. No, no, it did him no harm whatsoever. And, and in that by-election, the fact that he was the candidate... I, I think probably made him in 57 because if he had lost in 57, you know, I mean, Fianna Fáil are tolerant, but are not that tolerant. I mean, I can't imagine they would have given a candidate who had lost four elections uh, to, for the Dáil uh, yet another chance. But of course, once he was in, he topped the poll in every single election uh, until he um, until his last one in 1989. But, you know, but certainly, uh, being Le son-in-law, when Le takes over the party, uh, in 59 or becomes leader and Taoiseach. But even before that, uh, it's important because, I mean, there's a lot of talk about Hockey driving around the country in the 1970s, but he did it in the 1950s, um, which is less well known. I, I chart this in my book. He got into a car and he drove in all weathers um, to Cork, Donegal, and we're not just talking Cork City, like Witchelstone, you know, bad roads. And we're not talking the motorways we have. And now on his own with young children who we would, you know, happily have left with uh, uh, with Maureen. And he was, I think he's what we would call now an organiser. Um, and he, he wrote detailed reports, which were sent back to Fianna Fáil uh, head office. Some of them are now, many of them are in the Fianna Fáil archives in uh, UCD and some of them are in the Hockey Archive in uh, uh, in DCU. But it, it certainly did him no harm. Or that is that is very true. Um, and Lamas did come to rely on him as someone he could uh, trust uh, and the reports are interesting. They're not whitewashes. They're some of them are very critical of Cummins, and some of them are are very praiseworthy of Cummins. So it's um, and the Fianna Fáil then, certainly the nineteen fifties, is different to the Fianna Fáil. Uh, no, for many of its members, it was a uh, it was a social outlet. You know, they would go to common meetings, maybe sometimes twice a week, and they would, you know, they would go for a few pints afterwards. And but he, but that was an important part of his. Uh, I think, of his development in, in, in Fianna Fáil, yeah. Both as a figure within Fianna Fáil and also his understanding, very deep understanding probably of the way the party actually worked at, at grassroots level. And the the other thing is that his he doesn't just have a familial relationship with Sean Lamas, they're on the same side of an internal 
argument in the party, which ultimately is won by Lamas when Lamas finally becomes Taoiseach, which is to move away from the disastrous protectionist policies of the of the preceding twenty or thirty years and towards a more a more open open economy and the beginnings of the encouragement of foreign direct investment and other things we're familiar with now. But he wasn't liked, was he, by some of those elder statesmen on the other side, the people like Frank Aiken and Sean McEntee, they didn't like the cut of his jib that much. Uh, not particularly, certainly in Aiken's case, uh, although there are friendlier letters to McEntee, uh, from McEntee to him, including one, I think, in the 67 budget where he talks about how his masterly performance both in the Dáil, this is when he's Minister for Finance, uh, both in the Dáil and on uh, and on RT later on. Um, but back to the sort of, yeah, that joust between McEntee uh, and Lamas, how he was certainly one of the new cadre of... Uh, uh, of young politicians, people like Dono O'Malley and Brian Linhan would have been would have been others. Um, the, you know the famous three musketeers, but all ministers in the nineteen sixties, all looking at a sort of um, Fianna Fáil being the engine of of Irish economic growth. Uh, free trade is important, and uh, you know ditching protectionism is important. But what I think Lemass and Hockey both shared uh, was a belief that the state. It could be an engine of economic uh, growth. I mean, it's very interesting in the eighties when Hawkey does finally get his hands on the tiller, and it, you know it's, it's disastrous in the early eighties. But he he had this very strong view that uh, the state could provide the conditions for um, for private industry and private uh, uh, enterprise. Uh, he believed that right, and then he started mixing in some of those social circles, uh, as we know in the uh, and Fianna Fáil do develop, you know, Taka um, in the nineteen. Sixties, uh, but he um, Taco was the, the the fundraising wing of Fianna Fáil that developed very close links with with business and financial interests. Yeah, in the nineteen sixties, yeah. and he used to have these hundred pound, which is a, quite a lot of money, uh, plate dinners in the Gresham Hotel and grooms and places like this in the uh, uh, in the sixties. But um, so he was important there on that front. But to your point about uh, some of the revolutionary elite uh, not liking him, that is certainly uh, true. I think you know he obviously was. He had tremendous self-confidence all his adult uh, life. In fact, all his childhood as well. He, he had, he, self-confidence wasn't a problem uh, for him. He writes to uh, to the General Secretary, uh, the legendary Tommy Mullins in the, in the 1950s, mid, I think 54 or 55, before he's in the Dáil, saying that he can speak with great authority uh, on commerce, uh, finance, budgetary issues, and is happy to speak anywhere on behalf of uh, of the party. Now he's, you know, he's he's not even thirty at this stage. He hasn't been elected. In fact, he's lost two two uh, general elections. Uh, but he's happy to put himself uh, forward. And I think some people, Aiken McEntee, uh, Jim Ryan, former minister for finance from Wexford, uh, the minister for finance during the opening up of the uh, of the economy in the late nineteen fifties, would have seen him as gauche perhaps or you know a bit flash um you know he did have expensive tastes even then he bought uh, he had an account uh with uh, with uh, bespoke tailors in uh, in dame street the the offices of boland uh Hockey boland were on uh, on dame street and they had uh he had an account uh, next door um he later said he never wore a more hair suit that he would have been uh uh, he would have had more taste in that. But the men in the mohair hair suits became this kind of motif of the, the 1960s associated with Hockey, uh, Lenehan and uh, and Dono O'Malley. And I do think that that struck a discord with um, with people like Aiken who would have lived through the privations of the uh, 
uh, of the revolutionary era and would have lived through the grim days of the you know Anglo uh, the Anglo Irish economic war of the nineteen thirties and and the troubles in the emergency and uh, and the other point which I think is worth making Hugh is um, some of them were distrustful of his um, of his heritage some of them were distrustful of the fact that his father was on the other side in the uh, in the civil war and were of distrustful of the fact that he was. Uh, uh, he was a Collins man. Um, that was obviously well so, known. So I get all that, but I also, the thing that's happening at the same time, and I wonder, is was anybody thinking about it at the time, is he moves from that, that modest house I mentioned in uh, on the Hoth Road in Rohini to a much grander house um, further up the road in Rohini, um, for which he pays £10,000, which is a lot of money in those days. Uh, at this point, he is a full-time public servant. He has supposedly, you know, not doesn't have a direct involvement in the in the accountancy firm uh, anymore. And not only that, that £10,000 property within a decade is rezoned and is sold for a couple of hundred thousand pounds, which is an really extraordinary sum of money. That's many million, many, many, many millions uh, in today's money, with which he buys both a stud um, and his house in, in Concealy, his Gandon-designed house. He's run, he's going to Hounds. He's driving around in a... Jaguar. Mark, yeah. um, a Jaguar, not a Mark, a Jaguar. <laughs> excuse excuse yeah. me, very important distinction. You know, does nobody ever ask how he's doing all this stuff on whatever it is, three, three grand a year? Um, but some some journalists start booting around in the nineteen sixties, and uh, some um, some in Fianna Fáil do uh, do start wonder, wondering about it. I, I quote some letters. I think one famously from Paddy Smith, who again would have been part of that revolutionary elite, uh, who was a minister for agriculture until he resigned in I think sixty four uh, to be replaced by by Hawhey, who had been minister uh, for justice. So there are. There are um, rumours about him, uh, and there are there is disquiet certainly within parts of the the Fianna Fáil, uh, family. He bats all these away, saying that these are private matters, uh, and that public life is different from his uh, his private life. I mean, I I draw heavily on on Colum Keane's work, your your colleague in the Irish Times from a couple of decades ago, when his his brilliant book Hawhey's Millions, and then his work on on the Ansbar- his book on the Ansbacker account. Uh, I made efforts as he did and others in terms of. See, could I find where this money came from? And uh, I couldn't. And, you know, that's that's just the way it is. Um, but certainly, it, uh, it did become an issue for, um, or it was an issue for, for, for certain people in Fianna Fáil. No, for others, uh, how he was the... Uh, was the great uh, the great hope in the 1960s. Uh, they thought of him, you know, that if he could have the big house, um, not just... not. The, not Kinsley, which he moves into in '69, um, but Grangemore, um, that this was a sign of social mobility, which we talked about uh, about earlier. Uh, Hugh, um, ten thousand pounds was a lot of money, and I think they sold it for two hundred and fifty-eight thousand pounds, which is a, a colossal amount uh, of money. And then there, the the assumption then later on was that how he had made various investments. Um, and these investments came good, which allowed him then to uh, to buy the stud farm um, and to uh, to develop uh, Kinsley as he uh, as he does. You know, he 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 does it up, or he has it done up for for him. Um, puts in a swimming pool, which I noted some of the reviewers in the papers talked about. Um, um, that is the best investment he ever made on someone else's money, um, and he. Uh, 
and he started using his uh, his checkbook uh, to pay for things. And unlike now, uh, you know, once the check was honoured by the bank, that was it. And that's why he got so upset uh, with the bank when they threatened to take his uh, his checkbook off them in the mid nineteen seventies before he uh, before he's back in cabinet and said that he could be a very uh, dangerous uh, opponent. And then that's where the I think that's where the big issue around the money comes because uh, how he said once he became uh, a minister uh, that he then handed over all uh, his financial issues um, to Des Trainer, uh, who had started off life as an article clerk in Hockey Boland. But we do know that certainly Hockey was involved in discussions, negotiations with AIB himself in uh, a decade later. And that is where the big contradiction uh, lies uh, from uh, from the off. Uh, he starts moving money around. You know, he, again, I, I, I paint this in the book and, and Colm Keane does it in his book a couple of decades ago. You know, he sells bits of land uh, to pay off debts he has, not simply with AIB, but he has debts with uh, some of the other banks uh, as well. And he was basically living this extraordinarily odd life, I, I would put it. I, you know, I try to get my head around it, but in some ways I can't. I mean, he was in Six hundred thousand pounds debt we know in nineteen seventy four, uh, when he bought Inish Fickelon. Um, now one would say like to quote Bertie Ahern like when he said famously about hockey who needs eight million. Well, one can say who would buy a an island for twenty five thousand pounds or for any sum, um, when they're in that much eye watering debt, and that is the that's the great contradiction I think. Um, I, I was going to ask you about this stuff later on, but I think we're kind of in the, this part of it now, so we, we might as well um, pursue it. I mean, you say in the book, I was reading David McCullough's uh, review of the book. Yeah. You say in the book that, I quote, the great advantage the public how he held was that he was able to keep the private how he out of his decision making on public policy. And David McCullough says that this seems to be to David, excessively generous. While Hockey may not have directly done political favours for his benefactors, they did get something extremely valuable for their money, which was which was access. Isn't that true? And isn't that maybe a picture of the way that, whether you want to use the word corruption or you want to use another word, is the way that the, those kinds of things work in Ireland? That the, the quid pro quo is opaque, but it's almost certainly there. Yeah, so I think David's review is, you know, it's very fair and uh, very complimentary so for, for the most part. And yeah, and there are quibbles in it. And I think uh, Colm Tobin had a similar point in Saturday's uh, review in the Irish Times and Alan Shatter to you know, an extent in, in the Irish Independent Review. And uh, and yeah, I mean, I don't uh, I don't disagree with any of that. The point I was trying to make and I was trying to get inside Hockey's head here um, and I, I talked to people lots of people about uh, the sort of public and uh, and the private hockey. Uh, Charlie McCreevy uh, I interviewed and uh, I won't use the words he used to me, but we, we talked about that and he said uh, something along the lines of that, uh, those who had given money to hockey, if he asked, if they asked him for something, he would have told them to, you know, go, go jump. But the point is, is I think, well made. Uh, the access it gave people um, certainly left him uh, exposed to what happened uh, later on and to allegations ever since right up to, to right now and, and to the reviews of this book um, uh, that he by taking the money 8 million 9 million I think the Moriarty Tribunal settled on and uh, did leave him open um, not to just to allegations but to uh, the widespread view that uh, he was he was corrupt 
uh, and I think that was a difficulty uh, for him. I, I tried to follow the evidence as as best uh, I can, um, and certainly if you look at what happens with uh, with beef in the nineteen eighties, we know, for instance, he used Larry Goodman's private jet um, in nineteen eighty seven. There's a letter from Hawhey to Goodman thanking him for the use of that uh, of that jet, and that did leave him. I think. Uh, that was a that was a difficulty for him. No, he didn't see it as a difficulty for him, and he was certainly of the view that he wasn't doing any public policy favors uh, for for these people. But I think instinctively one would, yeah. And I think that's David's point, and you know, and the reviewers. And I, I think that's you know reasonable enough. And and I think you make, you make the point in the book because I should say that you got uh, unprecedented access to 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 his papers, and yeah. so you you're able to follow some correspondence around issues. And one point you make, I think, at one point is that the written communications letters that are sent to him, when they touch on sensitive or or potentially troublesome uh, subjects, they go off the record. It, uh, the conversation is continued either in person or over the phone or something, and there is no there is no paper trail. Yeah, and he often says, "Give me a ring," and the number is there. Um, so yeah, just on the, just on the archive, I mean. The Hawaii family donated the archive to DCU. UCD were after it, Trinity were after it, you know, all sorts. Um, we uh, he gave it to us in 2010. It took us, took the library and the powers that be in the university for some years to catalogue them, but they are catalogued and we will now be releasing them in, I think, uh, late February of 2022, 30 years after he leaves public office. I, I don't think we have the sort of ability or the capability to release them all in one trench so we will be releasing them slowly and there will be a treasure trove for, for other historians and uh, uh, political scientists and people who are interested in uh, in the Irish state um, yeah and like a question is often asked for me are they pruned and that uh, they might well be uh, all I do know is that the Hawhey family gave us everything they had um, there was some stuff certainly in his uh, in his safe I, I quote a letter um, a memo from Hockey uh, after a meeting with Vincent Brown uh, when he's in the Department of uh, of Health. Uh, this is about the arms trial, um, and that was in his safe. So that that wasn't part of the. It's not part of the the, the papers. Um, and certainly, some some of the correspondence says, "Let's talk about this. Uh, you know, give me a ring, uh, or we can discuss this uh, later on." And um, and the paper trail does does dissipate. Uh, you know, there was a point in Alan Chatter's review about, uh, I bet there wasn't very much on the negotiations with the revenue, and certainly there isn't. Uh, that is true. Um, but we can only go on what we on what we do have. Um, so, yeah, but it is, it, it is a, it's a complicated uh, story. The money trade is, is complicated, as those of us who have tried to, to follow it have. I, I, I thought, though, it was important to, in this book, to present his view... Uh, of it as well um, and his view and, and his family's view and you know they have a website I think charlesjahahi.ie where they basically um, disagree with the tribunal's uh, findings and, and chart of how they did but I thought it was important in a book where I tried to get into the sort of the thinking uh, of how he to, to present that side of it and I and, and you know I'm happy to uh, I'm happy for my critics to say that uh, maybe I uh, I give them too much uh, uh, too much credit. So we can agree, I think, to disagree on that. One I, can, last I, I, can, sorry, I can agree to disagree with my critics, is my point. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Of course yeah. Yeah. One one last question on the on the money before we move on to the other issues. Yeah. And, and this is, I mean, the book is very much rooted in in documentation and empirical evidence, and that's very yeah. important to say. But reading 
the stuff about the money, it does strike me there is a further question about the harm that might have been done by this kind of behaviour, which was that that Charles Hawhey did preside over probably the worst period of political corruption in the history of the state. And many of the people who were involved in that were his his henchmen or his advisors or were very politically close to him. It wasn't restricted to Fianna Fáil, but it was disproportionately uh, present in Fianna Fáil. And the people suffered because of that corruption in all kinds of different ways. And the country suffered as a result of it. And you can sort of argue that that can be traced back to the, the example given by Hawhey. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's very interesting in his papers, he makes this point that the, the Irish public wanted to see their leaders kind of live a certain type of uh, lifestyle and didn't want, uh, you know, and there was talk about, you know, he, he didn't go ahead with the building of the, the Taoiseach's residence that Jack Lynch had mooted in the in the Phoenix uh, Park. That clearly, I think, is, you know, way over the top. Because um, certainly the Irish people don't expect to see their Taoiseach living in uh, such opulence as Hahi clearly, uh, clearly did, uh, and once the revelations came out, which he never thought would happen, um, he never thought that the the imbroglio with between Margaret Heffernan and Ben Dunn would lead basically to his demise. I I write critically of him there, where I think this is like short sighted in the uh, in the extreme to think that this would happen. Uh, but it goes. But your point is is is, is I think well made. Uh, the idea that the Taoiseach of the country, um, and not just the Taoiseach, but before he was Taoiseach, when he was a, a minister, and I remember he was a minister uh, for justice, for agriculture, for finance, uh, then for health before he becomes Taoiseach in, in 79, would receive large amounts of, well, not large amounts, millions uh, from private donors, uh, certainly gives rise to the idea, well, that if it's okay for the Taoiseach to do it or if it's okay for a senior politician to do it, well, it's okay for anyone else to do it. And I do think there is a, a stain uh, on the Irish body politic uh, that can be traced back to him. And I'm, you know, and although I have access to the papers and I, you know, I got to know the Hahi family, I, I think that is a fair, uh, it's a fair point. I don't propose to go in detail into the intricacies of the arms trial, which could take several podcasts. And we'd, Indeed, we'd yeah. still, we could still do several more at that point. Yeah. But there's no doubt it's a pivotal turning point in the story of his life and his his political career. And it turns him into a sort of an outsider figure, which despite the social things we talked about earlier, he hadn't been up until then. He had been a, a rising star of the party, a minister for finance, as you say, uh, a putative next leader. And all of a sudden he is cast out into the cold. And also something which I, I, I don't see in the book up until that point, he he becomes part of a divide within Fianna Fall around the question of how to deal with the the violence in Northern Ireland, which has exploded at the end of the 1960s and will continue for the rest of his political career. So he almost becomes overnight a different kind of a figure and a different type type of a politician. Would that be fair? It would, completely. So, I mean, it's very interesting. So he is, he becomes Minister for Finance uh, after his uh, his difficulties with, uh, in agriculture, um, when, um, with, with the famous farmer's strike, which which I, I describe in some, uh, some detail. And when, when Lamas steps down and Jack Lynch takes over and how he is made Minister for Finance, he is, not at the pinnacle, but very, very, very near it. And he's 
barely 40. Um, so it is, it's a meteoric rise in the 10 years from 57 to, let's say, 67. Uh, that decade is, is a great decade for, for him uh, politically and publicly. Um, and people do talk about him as potentially a successor uh, to Le Mans in, uh, in 66. Um, and as we know, he eventually does pull out of the contest between Lynch uh, and uh, uh, and Collie. And uh, there's only, there's no evidence at all, uh, really, of him having any either tremendous interest in Northern Ireland, and there's no anti-British evidence. There are, in fact, quite warm letters from him to uh, uh, to politicians from both the Tories and, and Labour in the 1960s. Um, and then... Once the North erupts, the, the whole thing changes completely. And it does change his, it does change the second half of his, uh, of his life because he is, uh, sacked by Lynch. Um, he is arrested. Uh, he is brought to uh, the Bridewell and he is later uh, charged and he is, um, he is put on trial. A, tr- a point which I think has been missed, uh, perhaps in the historiography up to now is that uh, what might have happened if he was found guilty? Well, he would have been sent to jail. Uh, I think the, the maximum sentence was something like 10 years. Now, it obviously would have depended on the uh, uh, on the judge. But for a man of 45 years of age, used to the lifestyle he was living then in 1970, you know, one can't, couldn't imagine a, a, greater, uh, a greater fall. And, you know, there has been very good scholarship recently. A lot of people would know Michael Heaney's book, uh, the plot that never was, uh, sort of a forensic examination, literally day by day over the course of those uh, two years. I, I cover it in two chapters. I try to look at it from Hawhey's perspective in relation to his defence. Um, and I do try to make, you know, try to figure out, uh, as many others, including Heaney and David Burke, uh, you know, and pretty much anyone who's written about modern Irish history. Um, and there is a view that Hawhey lied through his teeth. Uh, Dermot Furt and other have, uh, have espoused that view. And then there is more recent scholarship, which again suggests that actually Lynch must have known. And David McCullough, who we mentioned earlier in his review, says the idea that Hawhey, a famously hands-on minister, wouldn't have known what was happening uh, kind of, you know, damns him. Uh, and I, I think all that is perhaps reasonable. The, the problem for Hawhey, uh, who said, you know, that he was, when these arms are coming in from uh, from Vienna, and Peter Berry puts uh, puts a stop to it, and they heard that they have that disputed conversation uh, on the phone. And how he said he didn't know uh, what was in this cargo, uh, but wanted the cargo to be less uh, let true. Uh, and that is the difficulty uh, uh, for him. Uh, and it's a very complex story, simply on the grounds uh, as Heaney and others uh, have uh, have argued because Lynch should have known or probably did know and, and that is uh, that is the great uh, debate I, I cover it in um, two chapters in a what is a long book uh, you know because I'm doing Cradle to Grave and um, I kind of yeah I come down on the Heaney side of things for, for the uh, for the most part but I, I think that what I kind of bring new is the the thought process about uh, his uh, his arrest and the thought process about his uh, his defence it's, it's interesting he is the only parliamentarian put on uh, on trial one would have thought, even looking back now, or well, no, I think, as a thing from one would have thought, uh, the evidence against Blaney seems much stronger to me uh, than the evidence against Hockey. And yet we know that Blaney was, um, the charges against him were dismissed by uh, by another court. Um, 
and uh, and hockey, the sort of the the nouveau riche, the man who had made all these great strides in the uh, in the sixties, is um, is is arrested, charged, and is, ultimately acquitted, as we know by a jury of his peers. I, I just are, are, are you are you suggesting he was the fall guy? I think I probably am, and I think I, I make that point in the uh, in the book that, and he certainly believed right until until Lynch's death, and I write about probably going to that funeral in nineteen ninety nine in Cork, that he thought that Lynch basically had knifed him uh, in the back. Uh, there is again a disputed conversation when Hockey is in hospital after the the fall from the horse, in and of itself disputed, um, uh, and basically he's not sacked in his hospital bed, but he might as well have been he was sacked just a week or two later when he was out uh he sacked over the phone by uh, uh by lynch uh, and it is a it is a very complex uh story as we know uh, i think uh, all those who sort of weigh into it do so with some uh, trepidation as i have but yeah i i am sympathetic to to what happened to him i suppose might be the the most generous way of putting to putting it yeah, um, funny you mentioned him falling off the horse. One of the striking things about the book, which I hadn't realised, is that he's always crashing cars or falling off horses or almost drowning in his yacht. He has this series of catastrophes, which I suppose perhaps reflects the kind of risk-taking, um, he, he would say perhaps slightly buccaneering nature of his personality. But but one thing in the wake of the arms trial I think is definitely true. If you agree that the measure of a man is how he deals with a serious setback, well, how he just from a purely political, analytical point of view, is extremely impressive what he does, the way in which he rebuilds his career. He refuses to join the likes of Blaney and Boland by leaving the party or trying to set up another party because he knows there is no future politically in Ireland for him with that. And he has to eat eat humble pie. He has to work and work and work and work again. And he works his way back and he then proves himself to be the most adept political operator within the most adept political machine in the country. Yeah. And within a decade wins the leadership of the party. Yeah, like, I mean, how he wanted to be Taoiseach, that's the, that's the first thing to be said. And he wanted to be Taoiseach from a very early age when he enters uh, political uh, life. Uh, he didn't, he wasn't backbench father or certainly didn't think of himself in those, uh, in those terms. Um, and he knew, and there was a letter from Kevin Boland to him saying, you know, you must now join me in this great new, um, this great new movement which he, he basically ignores. Um, he has no interest in anything like independent Fianna Fáil uh, with, uh, with Neil Blaney. Uh, he knew that Fianna Fáil was the only vehicle. I mean, Fianna Fáil got routinely in the mid-40s uh, in these in the elections in the 1960s. Um, De Valera had gotten to 51.5% just a decade earlier. Uh, there's no future politically for any sort of independent uh uh, party in uh, in 1970 and he uh, he knows now he is clearly outsmarted I think by Lynch when he's forced to vote confidence in uh, in Jim Gibbons uh, Harry Boland says in the uh, in the Mint Productions documentary of 15 years ago that that, that was the lowest ever for for him as Hockey's friend that Hockey um would vote confidence in uh, in Gibbons in the doll uh, Lynch basically said that anyone who didn't vote confidence was going to be turfed out of the of the parliamentary party, uh, which would have posed difficulties for Hockey. Not quite, you know, not in the parliamentary party, but not out of Fianna Fáil. But if you're out of the parliamentary party, being out of the party was probably the next uh, step open to the leadership there. Uh, and that was extraordinarily difficult uh, for him. But I, I think this is where I put 
the idea of these kind of separate hockeys. He just said, this is something I have to do. Um, and then he starts, as we know, going on that famous um, chicken and chip circle. Although I make the point he was insistent that he would have Dover soul. Uh, people would <laughs> say it was steak, but really he, PJ Mara told me uh, before he uh, he sadly died, he told me that you know, he was, fish was what hockey basically uh and uh, and a nice uh, a nice shabla uh, or shabla so I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Um, that's what his that was favourite choice. And people were told in the hotels beforehand, you know, whatever about chicken or steak, Mister Hottie will have to have uh, uh, have fish. But they they're, they're long days. They they go they go early. Uh, they drive off to Johnny Gall and Cork. It's interesting. Hottie would never ever have allowed something similar happen in his constituency. The idea that uh, you know some some sort of pariah. Would come in and give a speech in Artain. Uh, that certainly wouldn't wouldn't have happened to him. But he was, you know, because there is divi- there are divisions within uh, Fianna Fáil. The cabinet rallies are own Lynch, as we know, and the party for the most part rallies are own Lynch. Uh, after the the arms crisis, we know when he comes back from the United States, there's a great cadre of politicians to uh, to meet him in um, in 1970 after Hawhey is acquitted and Hawhey calls rather impulsively for, for Lynch to consider uh, his position. But the 70s are, they're, the roads are sort of long and windy. Um, he did make it his business, though, that he would never be away from Abbeville or from home on two successive weekend nights. So if he was in the country on Friday night, he wouldn't be there on Saturday night uh, or vice versa. That's a, just an interesting, um, uh, an interesting point in and of itself. I think about how he sort of lived his life. So he works his way back onto the opposition front bench of Fianna Fáil in 75 and then back into government as Minister for Health in 77 and then completely outmaneuvers his opponents within Fianna Fáil when Jack Lynch suddenly decides to resign, thinking, I, th- I think, Lynch thinks that by doing so he is preventing Ahi succeeding him. Little does he know that Ahi has, has his number. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting um, uh, episode of high politics, I suppose. Um, the common story is of how he bullying and cajoling backbenchers. Uh, I tend to follow actually to Vincent Brown when he in his great piece of journalism a couple of decades ago about how he came to power. I, I think that's very accurate. Uh, four decades later, reading it, it reads extraordinarily uh, fresh. Um, Lynch went early in December 1979. Uh in the hope, strong hope and expectation that Collie would win a leadership election against uh, Hawhey. Hawhey was cultivating the 1977 backbenchers, though, with the exception of Martin O'Donoghue. Um, pretty much every other backbencher who was elected and Fianna Fáil had this great win on the back of the, the famous uh, manifesto, the sort of beginning, one might say, of auction uh, politics, uh, abolition of rates, car tax, um, and the like. Northern Ireland amazingly in that manifesto reduced to half a page the very last page and you know some typically bland uh, statement but uh, but Hockey is um, meeting with them he knows all of them he knows who they are there's a famous story Bertie Hearn tells about uh, Lynch passing him um, and you know basically barely saying hello to him not knowing who he uh, who he was Hockey knew who all the backbenchers uh, were and he was cultivating them but he did not expect the leadership election to take place uh, as it did and you know uh, it's a two day it's a two day campaign I mean it's it's quite extraordinary in one way Lynch goes on the fifth 
uh, and the election is held on the 7th of December. And Hawhey then is made Taoiseach on the 11th of December uh, with all those speeches uh, about what a terrible character uh, he was from Gareth Fitzgerald and Frank Kluski and Noel Brown uh, and uh, and others. But he... Um, that flawed pedigree statement by Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald said that Hawhey had a flawed pedigree in the speeches on the when, when Hawhey was being elected. That's often being characterised as snobbery. Gareth Fitzgerald says it was a mistake and regretted it afterwards. It had a certain ring of snobbery to it all the same, didn't it? Yeah. So in, in Gareth Fitzgerald's uh, autobiography, All in a Life, written now three decades ago, 1991, I think he puts it to the late hour and that it was a rhetorical uh, flourish. And it was to do with the party's pedigree in Fianna Fáil that half of the party uh, had no faith in him and had voted uh, against him. Well, just under half. I mean, he wins the uh, the vote 44 to, uh, to 38 of the 82 people uh, who were eligible to vote in that Fianna Fáil leadership uh, election in, in December. Um, but yeah, I mean... Looking at it now, and, and I try to look at it with some, um, with a sort of detached eye. Uh, you know, I come, as I said earlier, from the sort of uh, inner city, uh, although from a different city. And um, so I was very conscious of the fact that I might have had my own biases here, and which I didn't want to be unfair to Fitzgerald. But looking at it, it's very difficult to see it in any other way. Uh, it certainly, Owen Hockey, uh, 40 years afterwards, when I met him in 2014. Uh, 35 years after whenever, uh, he and his mother were clearly very put out um, that basically a son of privilege of the sort of revolutionary elite, uh, Gareth Fitzgerald, would say uh, that about uh, their brother and uh, uh, and son. And, you know, as we started out this conversation, uh, Hugh, he did have a difficult uh, difficult upbringing. Um, and how he never forgot it, he held it against Fitzgerald, uh, now, their correspondence, I, I quote a very friendly letter from them, you know, just before Hockey uh, dies about a conversation they had when Fitzgerald came out to Abbeville as Hockey was uh, in his latter uh, stages. But it did, I'm not sure if poison is the right word, but it certainly uh, coloured Hockey's view of Fitzgerald right throughout their great battles uh, in the uh, in the 1980s. And I, I don't think it's too... Strong to say that uh, you know how he's often criticised for opposing everything in the nineteen eighties, um, divorce subliminally. He doesn't call. He doesn't say in the doll that people should vote. Uh, no, but you know you'd only have to listen to any of his speeches at the time. Um, certainly, the Anglo-Irish Agreement of the previous year, which I'm I'm critical of how he's approach uh, to economics. Uh, but I think a lot of it can certainly be traced back to. Uh, uh, a personal dislike that probably went before. Now, in the 1960s, Hawhey writes to Fitzgerald saying he's very disappointed that Fitzgerald is joining Fianna Gael. He had tried to poach him into uh, Fianna Fáil, I think, with Gareth Fitzgerald's heritage. That was never going to happen, although he does admit, as you know, for voting for the Mass, I think, in 65. Um, but yeah, it did. It certainly it was a difficult day for, for Hawhey. Uh, he sat there a sort of basilisk like in the uh, in the doll as uh, he was accused of being a bit like Salazar, uh, Richard Nixon. I think that was what Noel Brown said. Frank Kluski implored Fianna Fáil voters not to vote for him. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I think it does reek of um, of a certain class elitism. 
Yeah, I'm not because time will prevent us from getting into much as I would like to yeah, get into too. the details yeah. of the of that first Tahi government and then the loss at the election and then the return of a second brief Tahi government. Beyond saying that, I mean, you, you mentioned earlier that he was intent set from very early on on achieving the office of Taoiseach. And perhaps it sometimes happens in those situations. He didn't quite seem to know exactly what to do with it when he when he got there. And then there are a combination of things. Some of them are just terrible bad luck, like the Stardust fire, which happened in his constituency, but which also affected the timing of when he was able to go go to the country. Then you obviously had the, the hunger strikes bubbling up in Northern Ireland. So he was unlucky politically in those regards. But he was also, um, he made some very bad decisions, both in terms of uh, economic management and in the second of those governments appointing Sean Doherty and, and others who ended up being disastrous and led to the famous Gubu years and cast him into opposition. And then in the 80s, this is the part that I remember as, as a living person, I suppose. So I'm kind of more, uh, well, not more exercised about it, but I, but anyway, I, it impacted upon me more. The 80s were terrible in Ireland. Oh, terrible. Um, and, you know, and some of it wasn't all his fault, but some of it was, yeah. you know, and the way in which he played the issues about things like uh, the, the social issues for for partisan advantage certainly didn't make it any better. And his contribution to the economic situation certainly wasn't very positive, certainly in the first half of the, the decade. So really, you know, he did us, he did, he did us all no favours. Yeah, so I mean, and, and, and a lot of people obviously talk about the famous speech he makes just a couple of weeks after becoming teaching about tightening our belts, uh, tightening our belts when he clearly wasn't tightening his. Um as we know, uh, as we know, no. But one of the difficulties is, was that the party was divided. He could have made a very grand statement and not appointed George Collie when Collie didn't. Uh, uh, this is a complicated story because how he says that Collie swore, swore loyalty to him after the um, the December election, and then Collie said no, he didn't. Um, but no, but he brings Collie and Des O'Malley, and maybe he couldn't have left them outside cabinet. But his cabinet is divided. And the party is divided and O'Malley and Collie adamantly refused to have any cuts in their own departmental uh, budgets. So uh, in uh, industry and commerce. And uh, the issue there is that uh, Jan Hockey kind of funks the hard decisions, certainly. And then he makes some of these very odd gestures in relation to settling issues, including giving teachers uh uh, and hospital consultants far more than what they were actually looking for to settle disputes, uh, which again impacted significantly on the uh, on the public purse, and also impacted on you know those who were uh, who relied, as they saw it, on Hockey and on Fianna Fáil to look after uh, social welfare measures. We, you know, any increases in social welfare are wiped out by increases in in uh, inflation. Hockey is not as obsessed about inflation as Margaret Thatcher is in uh, in Britain, but that's but you know it's constituents were not well served uh, then. And you're right about the 1980s. Uh, I was in secondary school and then later I went to UCC. Uh, Rachel, there was nothing else to do. Um, they were miserable. The divorce and the abortion referendum of 1983 is even worse. Now, I think Arif Fitzgerald holds grave responsibility uh, as much as Hockey for kowtowing to the uh, the um, the pro-life uh, amendment campaign um, people and I write about that. Uh, divorce certainly is, you know, I mean, one way how he understands 
the Fianna Fáil electorate and the Fianna Fáil electorate wasn't in favour of divorce for the most part. Certainly the rural parts of it uh, were not. There were certain um, certain liberals, um, people like Seamus Brennan and others in, uh, in Fianna Fáil, um, you know, and he does kind of play a double game there in 86. Uh, let's put it like this. He certainly wasn't unhappy when the divorce referendum uh, wasn't passed because it was another failure for Fitzgerald. Um, and then when the when the election comes in 1987, after the Fine Gael-Labour coalition sort of uh, implodes and Labour uh, leads, he is um, he's primed for leadership. The Anglo-Irish Agreement doesn't feature in the, uh, in the election. That's an election about the economy, who can get Ireland out of uh, the mess? But he is denied again the uh, the overall majority. Why is he denied the overall majority? Because the PDs do so well. And why do the PDs do so well? Well, that's a question that he had to face up to because the Des O'Malley being expelled from the uh, uh, from the the party, uh, he certainly had a very fair wind behind him and uh, did much better than he and certainly how he expected in uh, in eighty seven. Yeah, so he arrives in, in 87, and I, uh, I, I I do remember this. He makes a bunch of promises in the election and then completely does a vote fast on them when he gets into power, which, you know, is not an unknown in politics. And this is the period that in, in your book, I think, and generally in retrospect, as seen as certainly his his most significant and important impact on on Irish society, really, in terms of setting the template, really, for the economic recovery of the of the 1990s and beyond. I do wonder, looking at that, whether no matter what his efforts were to get the overall majority he craved, he was a better politician when he was constrained either by something like the Fine Gael's Tala Agreement support or then after 1989 by coalition, that there was somebody keeping an eye on him, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, I think there's uh, there's something uh, something to that, but I also don't think it should be sort of uh, oversold. By by 87, Hahi is 62 um probably knows that he has one full government maybe two um is very disappointed not to get the overall majority in uh, in 87 uh and is lucky that Alan Jukes did what probably he wouldn't have done uh which is to support the general macroeconomic uh, trust which was to cut public spending and to regain international confidence in the uh uh, in the Irish state, and because as you said, you know the Irish economy was a basket case in the in the nineteen eighties, and we had emigration levels that we hadn't been seen since the uh, the nineteen fifties, and lots of people thought that uh, you know Ireland wasn't a state with much of a uh, much of a future, including I suspect some of uh, our contemporaries here. Um, but when he gets, he works social partnership. And social partnership is interesting because that's about the state. That's about the power of the state. The power of the state to bring farmers, trade unions uh, and the business communities together. I mean, he ditches the ICMSA, the small farming organisation, when they say they can't sign up to it. He said, well, off you go. Uh, we're going ahead with this anyway. He made similar threats to the unions uh, and to the and to IBEC and, and both of them signed up uh, for it. And, you know, social partnership has its critics because it had a... It fails basically uh, in 2008 when the economic crash happens, but it gave the Irish state, I think, two decades of relatively macroeconomic stability. But then he is also, you know, he's then pushing for the IFSC. Uh, he's pushing for private industry to, um, you know, he goes to Japan. I mean, there's all the talk about Japan and the famous uh, calling of the 89 election. But the reason he's there is he's trying to drum up business um 
for the uh, for the Irish state. The IDA are very happy with Hawhey because he goes to the United States, he goes to Japan, um, trying to drum up business and say Ireland is a place you can. Uh, you as in the royal you you can invest uh, your money uh, in and it and it works uh, I, I it works for the most part i mean again it's difficult if you're if you're poor um but the opportunities do begin to emerge in the late 80s that certainly weren't there in uh, five or six years earlier during the Fine Gael labor uh, labor coalition although it's not in, it's not entirely down to him in that the world around him is changing um and you have you know greater european unification which offers opportunities and then you know as you get into the 1990s increased globalization which ireland benefits from so there are broader factors oh at play. no very much so yeah no i did I, I wouldn't want to claim and i don't think i claim in the book that hockey is the sort of the uh the sole agent but he is the agent of that macroeconomic policy revolves around and he uses the office of the Taoiseach um, much more strongly than any previous incumbent had in trying to drive economic uh, policy. But And he does this with Ray McSharry uh, and McSharry was deeply worried. I write, there's an anecdote in the book about uh, Patrick Flynn saying at the first cabinet meeting in 87, you know, that, that the natives basically won't wear uh, the cutbacks and McSharry having his... Uh, his hand in his mouth, basically, that how he would say, well, Ray, we have to rethink it, but no, because uh, Mark Sherry told him, I will become Minister of Finance as long as you back me. And how he did back him, and he told Flynn and others, if you don't like it, get out of the room and we'll just get other people. Um, and Fianna Fáil was, for the first time since uh, how he became leader in 79, once the O'Malley Lee is expelled, uh, and there's obviously a debate in the party about that, and once... Uh, once the party is relatively united, it, it, it works uh, for them. And then, of course, it all goes spectacularly pear-shaped uh, in uh, early 1992 uh, when the ghost of Sean Doherty uh, come back to haunt him. And you're certainly right there, and I, I make no qualms about this in the book, Point, appointing Sean Doherty in 1982 was a disastrous error of judgment by Hawhey to the uh, to the Ministry of Justice. Guards, former guards, shouldn't be in charge of the guards. I think in the first instance, um, and Hawhey, you know, I, I write at length on that chapter. I think it's called phone tapping um, about Hawhey's defence, and you know, there's a copy of the Irish Times uh, of the day uh, with all his little uh, annotations uh, in his papers. Uh, but again, a bit like the money, he leaves himself wide open. Um, to the fact that he must have known about the phone tapping uh, because uh, of the person uh, he appointed in the first place. And, you know, many people told me off the record um, and I have to remain off the record for a conversation that how he must have known um, because, again, he was sort of, he wanted to know what was going on in all of his departments. Um, but his defence always was that, you know, Doherty had, had let him down. Um, it's written brilliantly about in, uh, in the, uh, the Martin Joyce book, The Boss, which still remains fresh to this day, uh, and, and another famous Irish Times journalist. But it's uh, how he hated that book, by the way. Uh, Peter, I think, will enjoy that, but he, 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 wouldn't, have it, he wouldn't have it mentioned in his, uh, uh, in his company. But again, the problem for him was that... Uh, you know, uh, he was just left uh, left up by a mistake he had made uh, a decade earlier, and he certainly should have known better than to uh, than to appoint Sean Doherty to such a crucial position. And in a way, isn't it true as well that the baggage of his past would have prevented him from progressing uh, what became the peace process in the nineteen nineties under Albert Reynolds and uh, particularly under Albert Reynolds and Bertie Ahern, in that it would have been more. Div- he did. 
reach out. There were initial talks with the with Republicans in Northern Ireland, but it would have been much more difficult to go much further with that with Hahi in 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 power than it was with Reynolds. Yeah, I, I think I write in the book something along the lines that the ghost of the arms child always stayed with uh, with Hahi, and that was certainly uh, true in relation to the burgeoning peace process in. Uh, uh, from 1987 onwards, uh, when Alec Reid visited Kinsley as an intermediary with uh, with Sinn Féin, um, there are letters to and from, um, or from, I should say, uh, Jerry Adams, uh, looking for what became a type, what what was later the kind of pan nationalist front. Uh, how he certainly couldn't have uh, uh, have any of this come become public. Um, because I think the reaction still would have been uh, extraordinarily uh, hostile, and perhaps rightly so. I mean, he was deeply, deeply shocked, um, so shocked uh, as to be practically speechless by uh, by Enniskillen in uh, in November of eighty seven. I mean, the feelers had been uh, had been put out uh, about peace, and yet you had this just heinous uh, crime uh, committed by the uh, by the provos, uh, which definitely you know rocked him on his. Uh, on his heels and rocked the belief I think of many uh, who were working for peace that the uh, that the provos were serious uh, serious about it because if you're serious about it you know you don't go targeting um, the most sacred day in the sort of uh, in the unionist tradition uh, whether we uh, like it or not and I think that's what uh, that's what Enniskillen represented to uh, to he, he kind of sticks with it over the course of the next a uh, few years um there are relatively um harmonious uh relations in the early stages with John Major but then they they go rapidly uh, downhill and I, I think I write in the book that is by by February by January February 92 when he goes the peace process is in a kind of stalemate and it does take Albert Reynolds um over the course of the following uh, year and a half uh to come up or two years um to drive forward with the um Downing Street Declaration, which I don't think uh, Hockey would have been able to get over the line like Albert was. And then he does depart relatively relatively quietly in the end. And then there's, as you've mentioned earlier, this this kind of rather dismal coda of the of the tribunals, which are are, are humiliating um, um, for him, perhaps perhaps justifiably. Just looking now back, maybe go back to where we started at the at the top of this conversation. Now that we're thirty years on from. Hahi being Taoiseach. I look at him, this is a very 2021 question. There are elements of 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 Hahi's political persona that resonate today when people talk about the populist political style, that the kind of the idea of of the strong leader and perhaps the perhaps the wealthy leader who also paradoxically is against the elites. Um, uh, and various other elements of the the Hahi style and appeal to nationalism, perhaps to some extent as well. I don't necessarily mean these in a pejorative way, uh, although some 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 might see them that way. You can sort of see in him a forerunner of some of the populist styles that we've seen in the in in the last ten years in in other countries. But he stands alone and unique among Irish political leaders in the, in having that kind of political style. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with that. I mean. Comparisons are made with people like Berlusconi, um, in uh, in Italy, and later I think uh, Donald Trump, uh, in the uh, in the United States, and certainly Hockey had a kind of a great man view of history himself. I mean, he did have the idea that uh, history could be shaped uh, by great men like him. Um, this is 
thinking now in sort of Hockey's persona as to think from what I think. Um, but he certainly did think uh, did think that and he, that he could shape uh, political uh, political events. And he was then himself, you know, paradoxically outmaneuvered uh, by Albert Reynolds in um, in January of. Uh, of 1992 and forced out of office much earlier than he certainly uh, wanted uh, to go. But, you know, I, I write in the, uh, I think in the, towards the end of the book about, there's a whole, about sort of maybe a life one parallel. And what I meant by that was to say, if you think that we haven't talked about the Terry Keane sex stuff, which is fine, but here's the sort of the extramarital affair. There is the, the huge money. There's the big house. Um, there are the grand gestures. Um, and But there's also significant public policy pros, uh, uh, positives, I think, um, which we've just talked about, you know, certainly in the, uh, in the economy, in the early stages of, uh, of the peace process. Uh, in Ireland, on the international stage, I mean, how he clearly runs uh, a very successful European presidency and he, in his sort of, when he's trying to defend, when he's thinking about writing his memoir, um, Martha Manser and other people, Kind of help, and it, it goes. Uh, it goes nowhere. But he talks about people around the table uh, at that stage. Uh, he mentions Andriotti. He mentions uh, Papandreou. He mentions uh, uh, Mitterrand. He saw himself as you know the personification. I suppose one might put it uh, of uh, of the Irish great man being able to to do things and sitting comfortably at this uh, table with. Uh, with Thatcher and with with the greats of uh, Helmut Kohl and the greats of European um, uh, diplomacy, and that is a successful uh, presidency. I mean, obviously, the early stages of German unification are being uh, discussed. He how he travels all around uh, Europe, but he, um, but but the point is that he certainly thought of himself in those uh, grand gestures, and and maybe I think politics anymore doesn't uh, allow for 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 that kind of grand gesture to. Uh, uh, to be made, he certainly had a, and I write about this in the book, a difficult relationship with some civil servants who wanted to observe a far more um, incremental style, let's put it like that, uh, or a, no, a, a non, maybe a presidential style, Hugh, um, and certainly how he had difficulties with, with President Hillary and President uh, Robinson, those two who he would have... Uh, uh, he would have dealt it, and that's why I think I mentioned it as a kind of a, a life unparalleled in um, in the modern Irish. No, and you know he would be horrified at where Fianna Fáil is. Where Fianna Fáil is now, I mean, he he probably is turning in that grave in uh, uh, in Sutton because he, uh, you know, I think to see Fianna Fáil at uh, you know whatever it is, thirteen, fourteen percent in the polls, he just he certainly wouldn't be able to because uh, he saw Fianna Fáil as as many did, Sean Lemass did. To go back to Eamon de Valera as the vehicle for social, economic, uh, even cultural progress uh, and culture. I know we haven't touched it, but again, is a big part of his um, of how he saw himself, but also of how he saw Ireland. I mean, he he became a collector of uh, all sorts of things, uh, as we know, very valuable uh, paintings. And, and again, this goes back to the money. How were these paid for? Uh, but he did become a collector of you know Louis de Brocky's. I, I quote uh, a letter. Um, from the Brocky to him, where he delivers um, some watercolors, um, and people you would know much more about than I would. Um, but it is uh, it's sort of bound up in yeah, in this extraordinary life, I would say. Yeah, I actually did want to just briefly touch on that arts art, arts and culture thing because he is. I mean, he's absolutely head and shoulders above any other 
significant Irish political figure, you know, at the, at the senior government level in terms of his engagement with Irish culture and Irish artists and, and certain things he did as well. Um, and his friendships with everybody from, you know, McLearmore and Edwards to the, to the great visual artists and, and, and poets. And he knew what he was talking about. He wasn't, he wasn't, uh, spoofing either. But yet there's something about that that I still wonder, wonder about. And in a way that makes him a quintessential Irish politician in some ways. And I think you refer to this in the book that he saw his role as um, getting things for people and bypassing a faceless and unsympathetic bureaucracy that wouldn't necessarily get them. The whole idea of the Irish politician as the deliverer of the goodies to the people who who deserve the goodies, which has always been there, it seems to me, in, in Irish politics and hasn't hasn't entirely gone away, you know, so that the the criticism, I suppose, would be that uh, despite his own personal experiences, he always thought that the the party and the state could be intertwined in a way, as opposed to necessarily, some might say, changing the structures of the state to to eliminate inequality. Yeah, I mean, to quote to other famous Irish Times journalists, uh, there's a famous piece with Nulo Fuelon in the Irish Times from... Uh, is it, I think, 89, um, where he does talk about the, the faceless bureaucracy and him overcoming uh, overcoming that and that the people shouldn't be unaware that it was he um, was responsible for, for them getting it or, or Fianna Fáil. Uh, and, you know, just to fast forward a bit, in, in 2011, many people in Fianna Fáil thought that they would be saved from a, an unmerciful crushing at the electorate's hands uh, by that sort of patronage that had been built up over... Decades now, we know that didn't happen because the sort of economic crash took precedence over everything else. But it was, I, I remember talking to Fianna Fáil people at the time who said they didn't see the scale of it, notwithstanding what opinion polls were, were telling them. Um, and then to quote maybe perhaps Fintan O'Toole, who was very sceptical about hockey's relationship with, uh, with the arts, um, seeing it again perhaps as a, a vehicle for uh, both personal and, uh, and political uh, advancement, and I, I think that's not being unfair to uh, to Finton, um, who writes, I think, quite brilliantly. Although I wasn't, I I, I, I didn't have time, to, I I wasn't in time to engage with it in his recent brilliant book because I was uh, my own was gone to my long suffering publishers by uh, uh, by then. But certainly the hockey with, um, and I, I think this is what I write at the beginning when I say there's loads of different hockeys. Uh, he was interested in art. Um, he did understand it. Uh, and he made it his business to understand it and to talk to people uh, about it. I mean, he was interested in, in wine, and he had a you know a, quite a significant wine uh, cellar with the you know quite significantly uh, good wines uh, in it. And then he was interested in things like um, you know, he had a beehive in uh, in Abbeville and uh, cultivated you know various um, botanists about his uh, about his gardens. Um, if the uh, and some people have seen a sort of a kind of hockey getting above his kind of station, uh, perhaps to go back to the class thing. Um, you know, and there's the famous uh, painting of him with the uh, the bowler hat, the uh, the Maguire painting, um, or maybe lampooning. Um, he was impervious to uh, to being lampooned for the most part. I mean, he didn't like Scrap Saturday, but you know, he wasn't. Um, he wasn't going to sue or anything like that either. Uh, he came close, I think, to suing um, Sebastian Barry and the Abbey. If, or if not close, I mean, his solicitors certainly were were very upset about uh, about the staging of that, and uh, you know, wrote a solicitor's letter to the Abbey, uh, but he 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 put a stop to that uh, himself. Uh, 
uh, as well. Uh, which, um, and again, isn't there a discussion about that, which we probably don't have time to about why he didn't sue uh, various places because he didn't want perhaps uh, people trawling through his um, his finances or anything else. The example of Oscar Wilde might have uh, might have struck me with issues that. Do you feel you know him now, having spent so much time with him and with his papers? Because he still seems somewhat unknowable to me. Yeah, I know him better now than I did, and uh, I mean, I know there are people who knew him. I never met him. Uh, I know there are people who knew him and would think they would know him better than anybody else. And I know people like Vincent Brown would know him very well, uh, who are you know, still thinking about him all the time, um, uh, Matt Cooper and others. Uh, I think I know as much about him as pretty much anybody else, I think. I know the papers. The papers are extraordinary because they're not just about the great and the good. They're not just about Thatcher and Mitterrand and, you know, Fianna Fáil. They're about ordinary people on the north side writing to him, trying to better themselves. There are some, what I would describe as painful letters, uh, they're painful to read um, because of the poverty that is on display uh, in them. Uh, and that's how, that's why I describe them. I think they will be a treasure trove. And uh, yeah, he is unknowable in, in one way. I mean, I, I write at the end in myths and contradictions. I mean, he was a contradictory uh, character, uh, certainly. And there were kinks uh, in there that I I haven't figured out and I don't think others would. But I think, um, says he modestly, that uh, I maybe know him as much as probably anyone could know him uh, which maybe isn't enough but um, it's the best I can do Hockey is published by Gill Books and it's the perfect present for Christmas for the uh, the Irish political nerd in your life thanks to, to Gary for joining us thanks also to our producer Jennifer Ryan we will be back very soon but do remember you can mail us with your thoughts and your questions at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com so until then see you soon thank you Hugh